Hello and welcome to the PNE podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I'm your host. In this series, which is our first series titled The Person Behind the Job Title, I'm joined by a range of guests that are senior leaders from across the public sector. We'll be talking through some of their career journeys, some highlights and some major things they're proud of, but also some of their bugbears and lowest points, not only in their career, but also their personal lives. In our first episode, I'm joined by James Devine, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Medway NHS Foundation Trust. James and I have a fascinating conversation about his career journey and what's led him up to becoming the CEO of the trust. We talk through some of his major wins and some of the stuff that he's really most proud of in his career, but also some of the more sadder moments and perhaps more of the pivotal moments in his life. One namely being the moment that his mum sadly passed away when he was just 25 years old. And that really set itself as a grounding moment in James's career where he decided to focus and knuckle down and make something of himself. Please do enjoy the next 50 minutes where we get to know the person behind the job title. Hi everybody, before we get into this conversation, just want to give a massive shout out to Just Are who are sponsoring this episode of the PE podcast. Just Are help NHS organizations to recruit nurses and other clinical staff using the latest digital marketing strategies and social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To be very clear, Just Are are not a recruitment agency, but an NHS specialist digital marketing agency that primarily focus on marketing trust recruitment needs to fulfill recruitment teams' pipelines with both experience and graduate candidates through targeted online campaigns. Alongside this, they've recently built from scratch a next-generation candidate pipeline management system which allows trust to track both the marketing campaign engagement but also the status of candidates within the recruitment process. Justar recently completed a 12-month project with Norfolk and Norwich University Hospitals where they delivered 108 nursing appointments through targeted digital marketing campaigns with an average cost of each hire of only around £350. They work now with over 30 trusts across the UK. So if you do have permanent recruitment challenges, particularly around nursing and clinical staff, please visit Just hyphen r.com forward slash p e that's just hyphen r.com forward slash p e to arrange some time to speak with rachel and her team about how they can help you achieve a 21st century approach to recruiting your clinical workforce so the series is going to be called the person behind the job title um, and, and trying to kind of debunk the myth that people with big job titles are are potentially difficult to speak to or, or, or scary to speak to, but actually it's just another human behind uh, behind it and, and someone that should just be treated like that. So um, I, I want to kind of just understand your background a little bit and understand kind of what led you up to becoming a CEO, um, especially of an NHS trust. So let's just start with, with kind of a bit about you, where you grew up, um, schooling, so on and so forth. Okay, yeah, good question. So I grew up in uh, Medway Towns, which is in Kent, south southeast uh, of Kent. Uh, and uh, school-wise, I, I, I always say that I kind of just existed in school. I, didn't, I wasn't really a high performer or a low performer. I was yeah. sort of in, that, in that middle group that just got by, I guess. So, yeah, I you know, went to local secondary school. Yeah. Grades were sort of okay, but not amazing. Uh, I didn't go to college or uni. I went straight into work at uh, 16. Yeah. Uh, the default was if I didn't do that, then I have to, I'd have to go and work for my dad's painting company. Right, okay. And uh, I, I knew that. You'd be a painter then, no? 
<laughs> I knew that I didn't want to work outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so, just, so you was born in Medway? Yeah. So, so, so was you born in the hospital that you're now chief executive of? No, no, no. So right, okay. uh, there, was a, there was, they had two hospitals um, in Medway. They had one in Chatham and one in Gillingham. And okay. One in, and then yeah. in about 1999, something like that, the, um, the other hospital shut down and was uh, morphed into this one. So it became a bigger one here. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that hospital is now a housing estate. Right. So, so that's such similar to mine. So I was born in Crawley Hospital, which is now shut down and it's now um, East Surrey as the, as the main yeah. hospital. Um, so, yeah. So, so, you were, so you kind of drifted your way through school. So you weren't kind of academic as such. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I, I, as I said, I, I think you just did enough to get by, really. Yeah. So, so what? So, what was your kind of dream job going up? Played football. Uh, yeah. I dream. I didn't really have one until I got to about sort of thirteen, fourteen. I wanted to be a policeman. Right. Uh, but at that time, you had a height restriction. <laughs> right. So I, think I was too short, and then I had a bit of a growth spurt. Uh, and then uh, I didn't want to be a policeman anymore. Uh, I felt I wanted to be a solicitor, but right. I, I wasn't. Well, I didn't think I was clever enough. <laughs> so did you did you grow kind of? You're in a big leadership role now. So did you show leadership qualities growing up? Did you think? <laughs> uh, probably, yeah. Probably through necessity. So yeah. uh, I guess um, growing up, I guess was quite an independent um, sort of time. It wasn't like a, uh, I would say it wasn't a loving family. It was, it was like a, so mum and dad separated when we were about 10 um, and my dad remarried um, and I spent a bit of time in between sort of my dad's house and my mum's house. Mm. How did that affect you at 10? Um, I don't really sort of recall it really affecting me. I know it affected my brother and my sister. My yeah. Because, uh, we talk, we talk about that a little bit now. But I didn't, it wasn't really something that affected me. I just yeah. kind of got on with it. And I think I was always very independent and yeah, probably still am really, probably too much. But um, I think you, you kind of learn that you're not going to get stuff done for you. So I felt I just had to just do stuff myself. So in really small things like uh, you know, ironing your school shirts, I remember doing that when I was sort of 13, 14. Mm. Yeah, yeah, same, same. So, so my mum and dad broke up when I was two. So, um, so I never remember them being together. And it would be actually quite weird to think of them being together now. Um, yeah. um, but my mum owned her own business. So she was gone before eight and not back till seven. So when I grew up, you know, especially not necessarily primary age, but certainly in secondary school, I remember always making my own pat lunch, always doing my own ironing. Um, and uh, like I was in the army cadets as well. So when I grew yeah, up, so, yeah, you was in the army cadets. Yeah. So it, it kind of, you grow a love for ironing, don't you? Like, I'm really particular about ironing. Oh, uh, Jack, I, I would not leave the house with a creased T-shirt. You know, Josh uh, ironed my shirts once. And I was like, yeah. no. no. Train tracks, train tracks. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, right. you can't be dealing yeah. with the train tracks. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. So moving on slightly. So, so going forward then. So you started, your first role was at Medway, wasn't it? In, in the hospital? Uh, it wasn't in the hospital, but it was okay. for the, the trust. Yeah, right. Okay. It was called a health authority then. So it was um, July nineteen ninety six. 
when I was three, make you feel old. <laughs> make you feel old now, cheers. <laughs> yeah, um, although I look younger than you, so. Oh yeah, nice try, mate, nice try. So, yeah, so July 96, um, it was for a school health department, which was based in a GP surgery in Raynham, so about five miles from the hospital. Uh, yeah, loved it. Uh, you know, it was, my first job was putting um, uh, medical uh, results Onto a, onto a new massive computer. Yeah, uh, like data entry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, school health immunisation records. So um, yeah, needles and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I did that uh, initially for about fifteen hours a week, mm. and I was studying for an MVQ at the same time. <clears throat> and then I got offered another fifteen hours at, at Chatham site, and then seven hours. Uh, in a Strood site, so I used to use my lunch times to walk between the three to get to them. Yeah, nice. That, that made up a full-time job, and I mean, my first paycheck was two hundred and fourteen pounds. <laughs> you never, remember, felt, never forget that. I felt rich, <laughs> and I remember saving it for about two months, and then took the decision. I rang my mum from a phone box in Rain and said, "I'm going to move out." How did she take that? She was upset, but she knew I, like I was independent. She knew that. Yeah, I've always been quite sort of strong-willed. And if I've said I'm going to move out, I'm going to move out. Yeah. And uh, I think they all expected me to last for about a month and then go back home. But you never gone back. In. No, I never went back. No, no. I'm moving in, thinking, yeah, got my own space now. I can do what I like. You know, I felt rich because I had a couple of hundred quid. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and yeah, before all the responsibility, eh, mate? Yeah, but it was great. I mean, I was, yeah, I was 16. You know, I stayed there for about um, two and a half years. Oh, you was only 16 at that point. That is young to move out. Yeah. Yeah, I moved out. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, sort of October, November time. Yeah. Uh, I moved out at 18 and I thought that was young. Yeah, but I, I, I say I moved out. I was asked to leave, basically. Like, <laughs> um, as you, uh, yeah, you can probably imagine. Um, I was uh, a bit of a live wire back then, yeah. and um, eighteen going out. It was, it wasn't. It was just more so. I, I kept going out and then bringing everyone back to mine for after yeah. parties, and like somehow my mum would sleep for them, but then would come down the next day, and like the downstairs would just be trashed yeah. and so yeah so she she kindly well we had you know had a bit of a barney and then it was yeah. decided to yeah but, but like you know it's definitely i've never moved back in i could never live back at home i don't yeah. know i could never ever live back at home um it would be weird now i've got three kids um but um but i could never move back at home um so so when did you kind of enter then into your first leadership role um, so probably when I was about 20, 26, 27, yeah. something like that. So, yeah. I, so when I, um, was in my first job, I did it for about 18 months. Then I, I was asked to go and do a particular work, um, on the hospital site, uh, in sort of early 2000. And then that gave me a first exposure into HR. Yeah. Did later that year, so year 2000. And then sort of worked my way up. Up the ranks, as it were, until I got my first sort of leadership role, uh, HR manager, when I was, I think I was 26 or 27. Yeah. Um, and a couple of years before that, my mum died when I was 25. And that was like a big moment where you think, right, actually, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sort of just go for it. And yeah, yeah. I was, I was actually gonna ask, was there any kind of specific moments in your life that really defined you or made you focus 
So I'm, I assume that was one of them. Yeah, certainly was. I mean, um, yeah, got a phone call on a Saturday night, said, oh, she's in hospital, fallen over, and then um, died on the Monday morning. So it was very quick. Wow, yeah. And I don't think it really hits you at that time, and sort of to a few months later, or even years later, actually, mm. um, where you, you kind of think, actually, it did act as a real moment to think, you know, I'm, I'm going to see how far I can go and try and make a bit of a career. Uh, and then 18 months later, I got yeah, my first sort of leadership role, HR manager role in this, here in this hospital. Mm. And I remember so you jump um, sort of salary by you know, a few thousand pounds and all of a sudden it opens up this sort of new lifestyle. And you know, you, you, yeah, I don't know. I guess on the flip side, it's kind of where the kind of imposter syndrome starts as well, because you think, actually, this is probably not was not what was meant for me. If I yeah. did that, I didn't do very well at all. Um, do you suffer with that now? Because you, you're 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 clearly a young CEO for the NHS, and I, and I feel comfortable to say that to you because I'm 26 myself. I'm yeah. I'm a young business owner, and I'm young to lead a team. Um, do you feel? Do you have that imposter syndrome now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a conversation about that this morning actually with somebody else. Um, yeah, I do. I still I still. Um, Look at my, you know, when you're sending an email, and it says, I still look at that and think, God, oh, that, that's me. Mm. And not, not because I don't think, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not you know, doing a good job or could be better or whatever. It's more about, um, as you say, I'm a young chief exec compared to sort of others. But at the same time, um, I look at it and think, actually, it wasn't something that I um, thought about doing. I never thought about wanting to be a chief exec it was just opportunity timing and support really well well with that though you know where did your drive come from then because you you don't become an nhs um, an nhs ceo by accident you know you've got to have certain qualities certain principles certain you've got to hold yourself in a certain way so so where does that come from then where's that drive come from I think it's about, um, I always talk about personal ambition and it's not about um, self, it's about you know, why, why do you work in the health sector? Mm. Why, do you, why do you do what you do? And if you get to like, the root cause, most people I think work in health because they genuinely are wanting to improve healthcare for a population. And um, I think about why, why do we do this job? And the nice thing about sort of being in the chief exec role is that you, you shape, you're completely accountable for shaping services for you know, 600,000 people that rely on, on this hospital. Mm. And when you say it like that, you, you, you can be almost consumed by this overwhelming responsibility. Mm. But at the same time, like what an amazing responsibility to have mm. that you're able to shape something so important to people as, as healthcare. Mm. Most people do it because they want to improve what we do and you know, patient outcomes and uh, well-being staff, all the obvious things but but more so with with genuine sort of passion for wanting to do it. Yeah. So it wasn't something that I said, oh, I want to be a chief exec. But when the opportunity came up, I thought, yeah, I always say yes to opportunities because you yeah. kind of think, would you ever get them again? Um, and well, so, so would you... Was you, you were deputy chief executive at this time, though, wasn't you? So you was exec director for HR and OD and deputy chief executive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'd done that for uh, what, a couple of years 
prior to taking on the acting chief exec role when the previous uh, chief executive left. Mm. Um, and that drive, I think, as you said, in the deputy role certainly was around um, how, how, what are the things that we need to improve on, getting a really good plan and then getting people behind you to deliver that plan. Mm. And yeah, we, we no doubt have improved the hospital you know, from four or five years ago to where it's at today. Uh, absolutely much, much more to do as ever. But I think the drive comes from you know, being in a place where you can make it better. Mm. You know, it's not a finished article where there's nothing to do. Of course. You know, there's absolutely stuff to do. And everything that you touch has a, has a people outcome, has a patient outcome. Yeah. Or, or a staff benefit outcome. And I think that all the time you hold those kind of two or three things as your core driver, I, I, I don't think you can really go wrong, really. That, yeah. that has to stay at the centre of, what, what, of why we're doing it. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so with regards to, you know, staying on that kind of leadership um, slant then, do, what's kind of... Do you, do you think that leader, being a leader or having that, what it takes, is a natural ability or is it something that's taught and cultivated? Yeah, I think, um, I think the real attributes of leaders are developed um, in you. I think yeah. they are there. Uh, I often say that the job of a good leader is seeing something in someone that that person doesn't yet see in themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, from your, um, yeah, your mentors, they, they're there to bring out bits in you that you either didn't know you had or you did know you had, but you'd have the confidence to bring out. Yeah. And I think that is in you. I don't think you can be, you can be taught the, um, the academic side of leadership. You can be taught um, your particular quotes and frameworks of reference, all important things. Mm. But I think at the heart of you know, a really good leader are, are some really sort of personal drivers and personal ambition. Sure. So, so did you have that then? Did you have someone that cultivated that in you? Did you have someone that, that mentored you to become, and are you still currently mentored? Yes, I always have a mentor. Yeah. Well, yeah more one than of one. the most important things I ever done was get a mentor and a coach. Yeah, I, would, um, I would always be an advocate for mentoring and coaching. And they're two different things, mentoring mm-hmm. and coaching. Uh, I, I would absolutely recommend doing that. Um, and certainly in, in healthcare, I've always had someone outside of healthcare as well, so that they're not bringing sort of a, a potentially biased view of the world. Um, my, I know my, my very, very first boss, who I still keep in touch with now, so what, 20, 24 years ago or something, um, I was certainly someone who uh, sort of gave you that initial belief that um, despite having a bit of a sort of challenging childhood and not doing a normal sort of college um, university route. Uh, I think she brought out a confidence in me that I probably didn't know I had. Yeah. And then sort of as you get, as you say, you get more senior, you get in touch with more people. Uh, I think it, it becomes less about those um, professional mentors mm. and more about the, the personal people that you have around you. I mean, you know, from you know, from Jordan and you know, the kids, they 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 drive you because you you want to do well for them. Mm. They are supportive of you when you're working late and having tough days or tough weeks. And you always sure. need that person that you can pick up the phone to, you know, without judging. You might not have spoken to them for ages, just to say, yeah, I get it, and mm. you're not. 
you know, you, you're absolutely doing the right thing, or or sometimes you're not doing the right thing and you're being a bit of a yeah 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 i've done that i've called my mentor about stuff that i've done and he said if you'd have done that to me i'd have walked out on you um you know things that things that from a a management perspective um where you know i'd I'd perhaps been a bit harsh or i'd been a bit this and 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 so yeah i think you need that someone that can call you out on something and i think one of the, the key things is to not have an ego about feedback and have an ego about criticism and have an ego about um you know i i almost like hearing the negative feedback because that's the stuff that's going to improve me yeah i don't know your thoughts on that yeah I'd, uh, if i ever do a 360 or any sort of feedback your your mind my mind is always drawn to the negative now some of that is is a good thing because you can use it as a driver mm. uh, sometimes you, you've got to be really cautious about um using it in a way that reinforces that imposter syndrome that you talk of course about. yeah uh, and there's a big difference um in those leadership roles not to as you say have, a, have an ego or uh, abuse that positional power that you get when you become mm. a leader mm. um, i always think the biggest learning in the chief exec role or even even in a director or, or a company owner role is you we underestimate how much we're being watched by other people so, uh, you know, if you're a bit harsh with someone yeah. and other people see that, you know, they will copy that behavior. Uh, and that's when you, you can run the risk of creating a culture in an organization that is not a healthy one. Sure. So uh, more think, of, rather than judgment, more about people copying that behavior in terms of being watched. Uh, so look, uh, academically, your behavior breeds behavior. Yeah, of course. Yeah, people, people copy and emulate what they think their leaders are wanting from them. And uh, I think there's... Uh, a real balance in being a leader of someone who absolutely holds people to account for you know, delivery and non-delivery of things, but equally doesn't lose that human side of mm. uh, you know people go through things that affect their performance. They go through things that att- affect their temperament or their mood, and I think good leaders spot that in the people that they're working with, and um, don't have to uh, you know go in all guns blazing. They can just yeah. take the time to. I don't know, walk with someone and genuinely listen about what's going on in their lives. Yeah. Well, how many times do people say to you, how are you, Jack? And you go, yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Stress <laughs> the max or whatever, yeah. 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 Uh, and sometimes you need people who can, um, you can be that person that you can pick up the phone to or be a good leader where you recognize those things in people. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So, um, What's what's perhaps in some of the kind of more prouder moments of your career then? Oh, proud moments. Um, yeah, a few kind of stick out. I, I um I went to uni, university when I was twenty eight. Yeah. Um, Did you go to Cambridge? Did I see on your LinkedIn you went to Cambridge? Yeah, sort of. I'll I'll, I'll come to that. All right. Don't 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 pick me up, Jack. That's. <laughs> so I I went to uni at the University of Kent do a master's knowing for well that I wouldn't get a director job uh, unless I had a master's. Yeah. This is a prerequisite, right? You have to have a degree to to be on a board. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So that's why I went there. So part time, two years, every six Friday, Saturday, Sunday for two years, studied masters. So proud moment at the end, you know, throwing the big hat in the air and doing all the things that you normally do when you're about 20. Yeah. uh, Sort of 10 years later. So I'd, personally very very proud of that in terms of professionally i think some of the um 
I guess are really simple initiatives that we've implemented uh, along the way that have, have had a massive impact for staff. Mm. Um, so we, we were the first trust that, uh, in the English healthcare system to implement something called the Employer with Heart Charter. The what? The Employer Winning Heart Charter? No, employer with Heart. Oh, sorry, yeah. What, what this is, is um, it's a charity and it supports um, men and women who have premature babies. Okay. So basically, if you have a premature baby, um, often people don't get paid for their entire maternity leave because the babies come along, you know, in some cases, 10, 15 weeks early. Yeah? Mm. So what we said is, if you have your baby early, we will pay you normal pay until the point that you would have gone off on maternity leave. Okay. So basically, when you have a premature baby, you don't need to worry about money. Yeah. For me personally, that was a big thing. Yeah. It, it would affect probably less than 20 people a year at Medway. But it was huge. And other trusts followed, other private commercial organizations followed. And it became this really big thing to the point that, not because of us, but because of the charity. This year, um, you know, the government legislation was changed to include um, pay for women uh, in particular who have premature babies. Now, that is the fact that we were sort of two years ahead and said that it was wrong that people were having to worry about money when they're dealing with a premature baby mm. is we, we didn't feel that was right. Yeah. Uh, the other one, I think, uh, and I'll come on to your Cambridge point, uh, was uh, when I arrived here at Medway in October 2016, I've always had this big issue that we pay uh, in the NHS for a banding structure. Um, band one has previously been our lowest band. So we used to employ sort of housekeepers and some of our porters. So people who are doing you know, really tough jobs. Labour intensive, heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really tough. It's not like, you know, gruesome, grueling jobs and being paid you know, really low salaries for doing it. So we made a commitment that we would abolish band one. Okay. And we uplifted everybody on a band one up to a band two. So we increased their pay. Uh, to recognise that they were doing a really important job and we felt that they were being paid uh, too low a wage. And for me, it was a small amount of money, but it affected about 450 staff. And um, we didn't make a big song and dance about it. We didn't do much promotion about it. We just wrote to them all to tell them that we're doing this because we think that the work you do is really, really important. And they're the sorts of things that I would be really proud of. What did that do for morale? Because that's an incredible thing to do and, and actually a thing that's probably overlooked by so many organisations outside and inside the public sector. We forget sometimes that, um, you know, to your point about leadership, but certainly in healthcare, you know, we work in a people business. Yeah? If we treat our people well, they'll provide you know, good care, good services, lots of research to support that. But, but more than that, um, it's about recognising that people are doing some really tough jobs mm. and they should be paid as best we can to, to do that. Um, so for morale, I think what happened is that most of the, um, there's mostly housekeepers who were affected, thought there was a catch. You know, why, why are you doing this? A bit cynical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's ever helped us out before. Yeah. yeah. So we got past that quite quickly and you start to see um, perhaps there's, they then believe there's a bit more of a human side in sort of the management mm. of, of a hospital because they're actually recognising that actually we do do a good and important job and, we sh and they're giving us a bit more money. Mm. And uh, again, we underestimate, and you'll appreciate this from your 
um, sort of childhood and upbringing that you know, a few quid when you're earning uh, sort of a lower wage is, is actually a big amount of money. It's mm. a big, uh, it can make a big difference to them and their families. And just because we get more senior and we earn more money, we, we shouldn't forget um, the struggles that some people go through and um, how hard it can be. Mm. And by, by abolishing band one and paying people a bit more money, I think was a way to recognise some of that. Do you think that given that you had such a normal upbringing in the sense of money wise you know i assume from what you said you, you it wasn't necessarily an, an affluent family that you come from no. do, you, do you think that you know given that you know your role now and, and that you do earn you know what's fair to say is a decent salary um um do you think that's really grounded you and and really made you appreciate the money that you do earn but also appreciate other people's positions yeah i i do um I'll say it without sounding like a bit twee because you, because I do earn, you know, a good good salary. Mm. Um, I, I still struggle today when I, um, if, if I'm paying for something and I can't tap it, mm. uh, chip, yeah, tap and, uh, chip and pin, anything above thirty quid, I'm thinking, yeah, that's a lot of money. And it might sound bizarre because you know, in the great scheme of things, you might think thirty pound isn't a lot of money, but that still sticks with me. That I still value the importance of you know, a few quid. Yeah, of course. Um, and that's why I think it's important when we do these jobs that um, we never lose sight of the fact that you, the struggles that we might have gone through, people are, are going through. Mm. Uh, yeah, people, people do struggle um, financially, as, as, as some of us have. And we shouldn't mm. think because we have more money today that we ignore that people are going through that. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. To be fair, for me, like it's only really been in the last kind of probably three years that you know since i started the business even actually when i think the year before i had to borrow money to pay rent you know um and and so you know it's it's really probably last six months is where my life started to to change and you know i've moved into a bigger house and so on um but you know it's it's crazy how how kind of you know two three years not a long time or three it's probably about three years probably around this time three years ago actually that I probably borrowed that money um, to pay for rent and um, yeah it's so it's, it's crazy how not that far back things were so different and and that you're not actually that far away you're only a few mistakes away from being back there but that, that's why I think the importance of leadership is knowing uh, and building those people around you that you can rely on mm. uh, I, I think that people often say that leadership roles or chief exec roles are often quite lonely uh, and, and you know, to some degree, they are because you're you are the most accountable person. Um, but I think if you've got the right people around you, personally and professionally, mm. uh, you, you can share some of that. Mm. You've got to learn who you can trust along the way. You know, when I left um, the Barts and uh, the HR director there, Michael Pantlin, uh, gave me a really good piece of advice and said, you know, if ever you don't know the answer to something or you're just struggling. He said, go somewhere, lock yourself away and, and give me a ring. And that was uh, six, seven years ago. Yeah. And I still remember that advice. How many times you, I was going to yeah, say, how many yeah. times you called him? Two or three times. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, really good guy. Yeah, really good leader. Someone who can actually see yeah, those, that, 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 that trait is so, so important. To yeah. Be, 
Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, you get these people that put this kind of facade on that they that they know it, and, and almost like it's a discredit if they don't know the answer to something. And I think it's almost the opposite. I think if you can be vulnerable enough or you can show that weakness that I don't know everything and I need to find the answer out to that or, or um, you know, let's work through it together type thing, um, I think that's such an important quality because people can see through bullshit and to say you know everything simply is bullshit. I think people um, value humility. Mm. Leaders. Um, you know, so if, I, if I'm standing in front of 500 of our staff doing our monthly staff briefing and I stumble across a few words or, you know, whatever, it, it happens. You know, people aren't expecting me to be a robot. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll no doubt make mistakes along the way and, you know, slip up from time to time, no doubt, because that's part and parcel of being... Mm a leader who's um, you know, working their way through you know, big jobs. Yeah, of course. But staff, I think our staff value the human side of their leaders. You know, I, I hate that term management because people use it in a, um, a negative way, as in it's us versus management. Mm. People, I think, got to see more of a human side about their managers and not see a a robotic leader in the way that people think that you have to be when you become a leader. I think, I think it would break down so many barriers uh, between uh, a, a workforce that people could then just say, actually, he's just, he's just like one of us, you know? Mm. Okay, he's got a bigger job, he gets paid more money, but ultimately, you know, he still wants to have a beer at the end of the week. You know, he still uh, wants to go out at the weekend. You know, he still goes shopping like everybody yeah. else. Yeah. All those human things that perhaps people uh, almost forget that you have to do just because mm. you're, you know, a chief exec or a managing director or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Makes sense. So, um, when you got your CEO role, role, um, like, you know, you get these people that have like, you know, destination mindsets that are working their way. You know, will always be successful because of the way they think, the way they act, the way that, what they consume in terms of content exercise whatever it might be right but a lot of the time when they get there it's a bit of an anti-climax yeah. how did you find that when you got to to the kind of the the, the top role within the nhs um um what yeah what, what what how how did you feel when you got there yeah i don't it's certainly not an anti-climax um i i still think there's yeah so much to do mm. so much to learn as well I mean, mm. you put that, when you pass your driving test they, they say that you only really learn once you've passed because mm. you're having to deal with it on your own rather than with someone sitting next to you pushing the brakes and all that sort of stuff. Mm. I, I, you know, I wanted to do the job um, when, after I was acting into the role for six months. The job came up on a permanent basis and I thought, you know, why not? And you know, there's part of me that really wanted the job and the other part that thought, well, not, they won't give it to me. Yeah. I thought, don't try. And then someone else comes in I'd be thinking, well, I could do that. So I thought... Do you think if you didn't get it, do you think you'd have had to have left? Yeah, so that's a good question. I always said in my head, if someone else gets it, uh, I will absolutely support whoever gets it. Mm. Um, but I would probably be honest with them to say, do you want to bring in your own team? And you know. So I wouldn't have said I would have left because I, I still believe I came here to Medway to improve it. Mm. That's what I wanted to do. It's my local hospital as well. 
And now in the chief exec role, I feel really determined to get Medway to a sort of good CQC rating mm. uh, next time around. And you know, I'm not even suggesting that I would leave then, but you might get to a point where you're feeling a bit more accomplished in what mm. you came here to do. Yeah, yeah, sure. So what, what you de- what you set out, your personal goals and, and what you want to do in terms of to improve Medway, um, you're still on that journey and you still need to, to fulfill that, to feel like, I suppose, you, to feel that you fulfilled what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, whenever I've gone into a role anywhere, you kind of set out, what do you, what do you want to do here? Mm. I think, you know, a lot of us came here because we want to make Medway better, but tangibly wanted to get to a good CQC rating. Yeah. Yeah, even when we get there, yeah, there is another step. On yeah, of course, of course. You keep pushing yourself, thinking, actually, let's just keep going. You know, let's keep making it even better. And I, I don't have a yeah, career ambition past this job. I, I'm not thinking, I'll stay here for two years, then I'll go somewhere else. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to get to a better place for the organisation. Makes sense, makes sense. Okay, so, so, so something different then. So... You're really active on social media. Um, so Twitter and LinkedIn, especially, right? Um, maybe Facebook and Instagram, I don't know. Um, um, but, uh, but those two, definitely. What, why do you feel that's important, especially in this day and age, why is this important? Um, probably a couple of things. So I do use, yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter for work, Facebook, Instagram, generally just to keep in touch with sort of friends. Yeah. But, but very sort of restricted. Yeah, let's come on to that in a sec. But um, why is it important? I think a couple of things. One, I think it gets very quick information out there uh, to a very large group. Mm. Um, I think it's about how how do people see that human side of you as well. Um, you, you know, whenever it's not about um, just promoting the the good stuff either. Mm. The, the nice thing, but equally not so nice thing sometimes with social media is that people can get directly in touch with you. Yeah, so I get lots of um, uh, messages on Twitter talking about the good care they've received at the hospital. But you also get some people who contact you directly um, with examples of not so good care. Mm. And uh, you've got to be able to, you know, if, you, if you're going to put yourself out there and encourage people to uh, engage with you on social media, uh, you've got to be able to take the positive stuff equally and deal with the lesser positive stuff. And you always reply to everything. I always reply. Yeah, as yeah. best I can. Uh, LinkedIn, um, what I don't reply to, it should be clear, is uh, if I get like genuine uh, sales type stuff, which I know are just generic stuff, I don't tend to reply to those. Well, the copy and paste uh, jobbies, yeah? Yeah, I don't, I don't tend to apply. If it's something that's personal to me, and yeah. it's directed to me only, then I will always respond. Um, if it's a generic thing, I don't, I don't tend to reply. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, I think the other thing about social media, think about workforce. Um, I think it's good for our existing workforce, but equally we know, you know from an age profile perspective, you know, the NHS has a, uh, an older workforce, proportionally, certainly at Medway, and younger people in the main tend to use social media. You know, mm. Good research tells you that. And uh, it's a good way to keep in touch with you know, new students who might be following their university Twitter page. You know, they might then see Medway as an attractive choice for uh, a role post-university. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of work with Mid- Mid-Kent College on social media because um, we know that we get a lot of their students coming here after they have finished their study. So 
yeah, I think you can use it for all sorts. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And um, with regards to um, kind of influential people then that, that you've worked with, so you mentioned your previous, was it the, the executive director of HR at, at um, Parts, was it? Yeah, yeah, Parts. So that, that's someone that's influential in your career. And you mentioned before as well, your first manager. Um, what else outside of not maybe personal in your personal life? What's what's kind of been influential for you, or a person that's been influential for you? Um, I guess I'm I, I'm very lucky. Like I've got a, a stepmom. Yeah, who's always been very very supportive. Um, yeah, for twenty, gosh, twenty five years or something. Uh, always been very supportive. You know, my sisters uh, are very supportive. <laughs> Um, I guess more so, you know, on a sort of very personal level, you know, Josh at yeah. home always, you know, very supportive and the people who are closest to you get to hear all the good things that are going on. Of course. Uh, you know, always there for you when you have those difficult yeah. days. You, know, you know, pour your glass or something or run your bath or, you know, those little things that you just value when you're doing a job yeah. like that. Yeah, I've got that in Jordan, obviously, where you know, if I've had a bad day, she she's like my verbal, you know, my, my verbal punch bag as such, yeah. um, um, where I can, you know, just vent to her and and she just, you know, she's really good at just listening and taking it and just, and, and even if it's perhaps not even, probably the important bit, I don't know if you find this as well, um, but not even necessarily kind of giving any advice back, but just letting you vent. And then almost saying, are you done now? Yeah. I, 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 so important though, Jack. Josh always says to me, how was your day? And I just say, yeah, it's fine. Uh, and then it'll take me a little while to then start to sort of tease out why, you know, why it not, might not have been so great. Mm. Uh, but as you say, so yeah, sometimes it's just listening. Like I said, those you know, moments where you can just sit down, rant for 10 minutes, mm. drink, get another one, you know, you, you need that type of person around you who understands the, the job that you're doing. Mm. Uh, and you will be alongside you when you know, all the praise is happening, but equally doesn't move when you, you get some of the negative stuff as well. Of course, of course. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's address the elephant in the room as well, because you're a chief executive running an NHS trust during a global pandemic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, first question, when was the last time you slept? Um, <laughs> and, and second, how, how, how are things? Yeah, uh, I always say sleeping is fine because you're so tired when your head hits the pillow that you just go to sleep. Yeah. Um, I mean, listen, uh, we, we can say how hard it is. And, you know, there are moments when, of course, you're doing lots of planning and you're um, thinking about five or six different things to make sure uh, everything is where it needs to be. And you've got good plans in place, most importantly, if you did see sort of spikes in the number of patients that we were seeing. Uh, but, I mean, when you think about staff, you know, frontline, wearing, you know, PPE, yes, it's heavy, it's uncomfortable. Mm. You, you, it, it powers into insignificance in terms of what, what we might be dealing with in a sort of leadership role. Mm. Our role then becomes about how do we make it better and easier for them. And I know you, you probably expect me to say that, but I, I genuinely mean, let's ask them what do they want from us. Mm. Let's not assume that they want pizzas and cakes and cans of coffee. You know, it might be what they want in the immediate term. But we're also thinking about what do they, what might they need 
when all of this is over at some point. Yeah, sure. I wanted to talk to you. Yeah. Is it difficult for, because I assume, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I assume that, well, how many people are you responsible for? So we've got four and a half thousand. Four and a half thousand staff, yeah, that you're ultimately responsible for. And I I assume that the the majority of that workforce is clinical workforce, whether it be nurses, doctors, surgeons, et cetera, yeah? Um, How is it, obviously you're not, you, you know, you haven't got a, a medical degree. Um, you, you, you're not a clinician yourself. How, how is it leading um, an organization that is primarily that is the service, but you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't do that job yourself because for, for two reasons, you're not qualified, but for the reason that that's not your job. Um, so how, how do you find that leading a comp- an organization that, that is the role, but, you, you, but you're not? Yeah, I don't think, I don't consider myself leading a bunch of doctors or nurses or therapists. You know, uh, my role is leading four and a half thousand people who are all human. In, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't categorise them by the job title that they have. Um, is, it, is it hard leading a bunch of uh, doctors? Well, no, because um, I've got a medical director. Yeah, he's a great medical director. His his primary job is to be their professional lead. You know, my job is to work alongside him and vice versa. He becomes my medical expert, doesn't he, on anything technical? Yeah. Most of the time, people aren't expecting me to to be a you know a technical person when it comes to be, being able to perform what the doctors do or what our nurses do. What they're looking for is good. You know, does he listen? Yeah. React to what we tell him. Do we have confidence that he's got the right plans to help us get to where we need to get to, particularly, as you say, in the midst of uh, the coronavirus pandemic? Mm. So does that, does that make it hard, though, to initially build credibility with these people? I don't think so, because I think people recognise the chief executive role in the NHS as being sort of the most senior person. Mm. I don't think it, it makes it difficult because people recognise the role and you have credibility by being in that role anyway, because you wouldn't be in the well, role if you didn't. Credibility. I think you have positional power. Sure. sure. I think you earn credibility. Makes, yeah, yeah, of course. By, by doing the things that I've mentioned. Uh, the big thing for me, as you know, is visibility. <clears throat> I think you've got to get out there. People have got to see you and not, not see you with a camera following you, just see mm. you, you know, talking, listening, better understanding things. I think if you can do that, um, I think the clinicians particularly start to respect you. And then, again, you know, I spent time uh, shadowing some of our um, anaesthetists and surgeons. Okay. Uh, you know, get donned up into uh, some theatre scrubs. I had to be going to theatre scrubs three weeks ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jordan had an emergency C-section, but I can't. It's just incredible, like, just the slickness of it all. It's just... Oh, Work, isn't it? It's, it's they're amazing, uh, incredible, you know, incredible, together. and to see it you know firsthand, mm. shadowing one of the doctors, you know, it, it's you know, you're it's inspiring to watch how they do their day job. Mm. They say, Well, we couldn't do your job, and I think that's what the, the beauty of that respect is that you know, that, that respect is I couldn't do your job and you couldn't do mine, yeah, and um. I, I think that's how you start to build the credibility. Makes sense. Thanks. So how do you how would you describe your job then? What's your what's your day to day role? 
I don't think any two days are ever the same. I think you can you can not, not at the minute anyway. Definitely not. <laughs> I think you can start the day thinking, you know, I'm going to sit through a you know series of meetings around you know generally COVID, a lot of planning, um, planning for today, planning for a month's time, planning for three months' time, six months' time. So th- there's a lot of that at the moment, as you would imagine. Uh, a lot of conference calls with all different partners across the, the whole system. So yeah. Mental health, community, social services, the council. So there's a lot of that at the moment. And lots of briefings as well. So we, we've got lots of briefings with our um, regional team, uh, your care quality commission. So that, that kind of makes up the day. And then alongside that, you've got what might be the business as usual side. So mm-hmm. meeting with the executive team, trying to get out and be visible. We've got our financial side, obviously, to, to consider big capital um, program over the next couple of years. So you've got lots of kind of different plates spinning all at the same time. And you need to know a little bit about almost everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Because quite rightly, people ask you about anything. Sure. So this is, this is one thing that I struggled with when I... Because I, I went from being just a, a top sales guy within the company I previously worked for um, to then owning and managing and running a t- or owning a business, running a business and managing a team. So I went from literally having just being responsible for my, basically my billings, how much I, I, I made the, 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 the company in terms of money to, um, you know, organizational responsibility. Um, and the... The kind of analogy that I I use is it's like a, an orchestra where you're the person at the front um, um, uh, waving your sticks around. It might not look like you're doing much, but without you, it all falls apart. Do you resonate with that? Yeah, I do. I do, and I think people don't. It's really hard to explain what the role is because you're you're doing your part of your role is to bring the team together. Mm. So, you know, your analogy of an orchestra is, is, is right. You're asking people to, you know, bring in different things at different times to create this perfect tune. And, um, it, you know, some days everyone's out of tune and it's really difficult. Other days it, it plays beautifully. Yeah. I think that's the hardest thing is to really embrace the, the good days, but also accept that when you're having a sort of bad day or things are happening, you, you don't become a bad team overnight. You know, things happen and you, you have to accept that in healthcare, as I said, we're working in a people business and people make mistakes. Mm. Our, our job, I think, is, or my job is to make sure that we become an organisation that doesn't beat people up for making mistakes. Well, I think doing that just makes creates more mistakes because then people hide the mistakes they've made, right? Oh, without doubt, without doubt. We know, you know, certainly in healthcare and social care, we've seen, you know, sadly, lots of examples where that, that culture has existed where people didn't feel that they could speak out. And that's put you know, patients at, at harm, hasn't it, in, in you know, years gone by. And we you know, you saw a mental health program recently where you saw that happening. Mm. And it was now I'm really clear, you know, I, I think, and try and get that message out to staff. Mm. I, I want people to speak out. I want people to tell me what's going on. You're good, bad. I, I want to hear it because if we hear it, we can do something about it. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be uh, yeah, the organisation that we want it to be. We've got to embrace that way of being across the whole hospital. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. How are you doing for time, by the way? Because I know it's two and we had it scheduled in for an... So about five minutes, yeah? Five minutes, yeah. Okay, cool. Right, so I'll just kind of get on to... Um, 
some of my i've got one final question i said to you i didn't want to send you over the questions because i didn't want to be scripted and i said they're all pretty normal but i have got one left field one that um that that hopefully i don't throw you off too much with <laughs> um so th- my penultimate question then is is you know you've got a, a lot of responsibility you've got a lot of pressure what you know in your personal life what 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 are your hobbies what do you do to relax and and unwind and and mentally escape and and, and do for your mental health yeah so uh really important definitely mental health um physical health definitely is important so running i do a fair bit of running uh not not far normally like five or six k yeah so enough to sort of escape for half an hour or so um i would say i go to the gym but i don't really do very much other than sort of run and row and that sort of stuff anything mm. to get your mind for a little while um i'll be listening to music i would say probably very who's bad your, who's your favorite um oh, Jack, i can't oh. disclose that because i'll lose all credibility with with your with your listeners okay. <laughs> <laughs> um i'll tell you the last song that i downloaded there you go, go right into uh hang on let's have a look See, I like everything. I like stuff from Queen to Stormzy. Yeah, m- mine is more sort of dance, pop, chart type stuff. Right, yeah. So there we go. I was listening to David Guetta was the last person I was listening to. Oh, there we go. So it's so quite mainstream then, yeah? Yeah. But yeah, yeah you've got music uh, like that, I think definitely is good for sort of winding down. Mm, nice nice cool well then the final question right so hypothetical situation yeah so you're you're no longer the chief executive of an nhs organization you are now the chairman of a global um consumer products organization um you've just come up with a product that um potentially it's like an iphone but for now it's potentially going to change the world right um but you've got to get the right team in place to bring this to market to lead the team or to lead the organization um and and sell it so um you've got three hires left to make on your board um you've got it You've got to hire a chief marketing officer. You've got to uh, hire a a chief commercial officer or a sales director, whatever you want to call them. Um, And you've got to hire a chief executive. Who are your three people? They can be dead or alive and why? They have to be real people. Yeah, of course they do. They can be celebrities. They don't have to be people you work with necessarily, but like dead or alive. Oh, good. Okay. I thought you were asking me to choose from people that I've worked with. No, 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 no. That would be, yeah. Horrible. Okay. Um... Okay, so commercial, you said, yeah? Yeah, like a sales director. Okay, I'd have uh, Deborah Meaden. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, marketing. Why Deborah Meaden, first of all? I like, she's feisty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really like Deborah Meaden. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Marketing. Um, or maybe Richard Branson. Yeah. He's a bit of a king of marketing, isn't he? Yeah. And then chief exec. Oh, who would I have as a chief exec? Oh, I'll, I'll pick the best chief exec that I've worked with. So I'll pick Leslie Dwyer. Okay. Yeah, I'll pick our previous chief exec. Amazing, amazing. There we go, mate. And you're the chairman, so you're uh, <laughs> you're in charge. Well, technically, well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed indeed <laughs> cool well, it's been a pleasure mate and thank you so much for uh for joining me for the last kind of however long it's been i don't even know it's flown by
It has, it has. Edison, thank you. And congratulations. Thank you, mate. You're looking uh, not as tired as I thought you would. No, so I think the first week was hard because Jordan does so much for the family. Yeah. And where she had an emergency C-section, we hadn't planned for her being out of action, like literally bedbound for, you know, 10 days she was in the end, um, like where she, she just didn't, she couldn't do anything. She was in so much pain and stuff. So the first 10 days were really hard. Um, oh, sorry, well, the first couple of days were really hard, but, but as I got used to it, um, um, but it just makes you so, ad, you know, admire what she does for us all because without her, like, you know there's i couldn't do what i do about her because she's she really is the pillar of the family and i say that i'm the md of the business she's the md of the house and yeah. and you know in ham she's in charge yeah no it's good that's a nice that's a nice way of thinking about it yeah no cool cool right well thanks mate i'll let you get back to it um and um yeah all the best with everything and uh yeah we'll catch up soon all right yeah, you're a good man jack see you later cheers mate bye